Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and served as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome to a special episode of Experts Only. Today, I'm joined by some distinguished colleagues and other executives at Clean Capital, where we're going to talk about what we saw in 2023, the trends we're hoping to see in 2024, and where we hope the market's going moving forward. The webinar, What's Next? Solar and Storage Dynamics in 2024. So if you can see the visuals, you're going to see some great slides. But the conversation's also just as equally interesting. Get more episodes at cleancapital.com, and we'll be back in 2024 with a lot of more exciting conversations to be had about the, the trends we're seeing in policy and technology and finance. Thanks so much for joining. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Clean Capital What's Next Solar and Storage Dynamics in 2024 webinar. We're going to start in a minute. We're just letting folks join. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm John Powers. I'm the president and co-founder of Clean Capital. Today, we wanted to have a conversation about what's next and what 2024 looks like in terms of uh, the progress we're making towards solving the climate crisis and the role that solar and storage are going to play in that effort. We're very excited about the progress our industry is making. 2023 uh, was a pretty monumental year. And 2024, we're very excited about some of the uh, continued trends and successes, but also, some, you know, we're very cognizant of some of the challenges we're going to be facing. But we've seen major impacts to our economies with over 20,000 jobs last year being added to help navigate the work we're doing. Uh, but we're also recognizing the wins that we're seeing in both the capital and debt markets. And, you know, what renewable energy is facing, just battling on the ground to get things like permitting done and, and projects started. But despite these challenges, the clean energy transition continues to move and uh, make great progress. And our industry remains very, very resilient. So with 2024 only a few weeks away, I'm excited to be joined by uh, my distinguished colleagues uh, who are all clean capital executives, Belinda Baglio, who's our general counsel and chief investment officer, Paul Kern, who's our chief development officer, and Zoe Berkery, who's our chief operating officer. And what we're going to talk about today is what we sort of see as, as things that are going to be prioritized, elevated, and executed over sort of the next year. We're going, to not, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking backwards and look at what, the, um, what we saw in 2023. And we're going to spend a decent amount of time looking at what we are expecting in terms of 2024, and then really how the impacts of these things we're working on will help us drive the broader outcome that many of us are working on, which is helping to, to solve the climate crisis. So I'm going, to, I'm going to just start off first and talk a little bit about where we are in terms of some of the broader trends. And you know, the reality is this is is an exciting time for our industry, but really it's truly only the beginning. Capacity for solar continues to grow year over year. This is some great information by the Blue Energy or Bloomberg New Energy Finance Factbook. But the, the, the key here is the trends, right? The trends for our industry and for renewables continue to be strong. But to solve the climate crisis, they need to be stronger. And we need to get more projects in the ground, more renewables in the pipeline. Uh, get our supply chains uh, working smoothly and, you know, begin to enter more and more markets, both nationwide, but also uh, internationally. 
But the good news for those of us that, that care about this stuff, and if you're on this webinar, you do, we are expecting significant growth, uh, continue to move forward in all sectors, in utility, in non-residential, and in residential. And uh, the trends continue to be strong. I think a lot of folks got very excited uh, about a year ago, and this is my co-founder Tom and I at the White House is the announcement of the in the Inflation Reduction Act in September. This is in September of, of 22. And the Inflation Reduction Act, is, without getting into details, has a lot of very exciting things for both our industry and solar and storage, but also cumulatively for the climate crisis, whether it be uh, some serious dollars going into upgrading the grid, to efforts around energy efficiency for homes, to billions of dollars being put into electric vehicle infrastructure, or things like uh, smart climate practices for agri uh, for agriculture. But the reality is, the once these pieces of legislation were passed, both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, were truly only in the first or maybe second inning of seeing the impacts of these. And why is that? To get these things, you know, this is a, a map produced by the White House uh, that sort of shows how the public investment dollars are beginning to flow into projects all over the country, uh, and in some cases all over the world, when you look at Guam and the Mariana Islands, uh, and how on top of that, private investment is beginning to roll on top of it. So whether it be manufacturing facilities or projects, there is a accumulation of growth as the public dollars in many cases are helping to move uh, private dollars into the market. But some of the things that we see in terms of the rules around how we manage uh, and will execute on the IRA, for instance, uh, are just really being defined. So uh, as many folks uh, familiar with projects know, tax credits play a major role in our energy policy. And the IRA just really doubled down on that. And we're seeing this is a great breakdown of the variety of ways tax credits will be affecting sort of the energy mix. But even with this being in legislation, it takes time to roll out how this gets implemented. And a good example, you know, just looking at post the, the passage of the bill in October of 2022, the IRS put out six notifications for clean for some key climate and clean energy incentives. And we're only now getting the followed on initial guidance for things like uh, energy communities or domestic content and direct pay. Those rules are still very much being developed and public comment periods are happening. Uh, Treasury is being pushed by the White House. Treasury is turning around and pushing the IRS. We're seeing progress, but there are very clear rules on how this stuff has to move. And, you know, we continue to execute and operate in an era of uncertainty around some of these rules as they're being defined. But we expect some of that more definition to come next year, but also over the next few years. So when I talk about us being in truly the second inning of uh, the progress we're going to see from this monumental climate bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, I think looked at 2022 was a pop the champagne moment because this got passed. 23 was putting in place the uh, the beginning of these rules and regulations. 24 is we all have to be at the table helping our policymakers finalize these rules so we can begin to really implement and get some of these dollars working. 
you know, and I think that the uncertainty continues to come back into the projects that we're all looking at day to day, understanding how we're going to look at different tax credits or energy community adders, things like that. So that's from the high level policy perspective. I do want to turn to Belinda Baglio, who's our chief investment officer. And we're going to talk about some of the market challenges we've seen in 23 and how we expect them to look like in 2024. So Melinda, over the last year, we've seen significant swings in the federal interest rates um, and almost sort of a, a lack thereof when it comes to available debt on many projects in, in pipelines. How have you seen uh, not just clean capital, but the market begin to navigate this and how are, we, how are we preparing ourselves to remain resilient and sort of keep projects moving in 2024? Hey, John, thanks for the intro. And um, I know I was joking right before we started that this is my first time appearing on the Experts Only podcast, but it is actually my second. I remember now. Um, so I'm a little less salty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think this is going to be a good conversation. So so I'm, I'm glad we put this together. So um, I have been talking about this a lot um, at you know conferences and among other colleagues that I feel like we are in a perfect storm of challenges um, because as you were just talking about, we have the IRA, um, which is making additional um, tax credits available, but we are struggling to figure out how to monetize them because we have this perfect storm of increased tax credits and less tax equity capacity in the market and the traditional tax equity market on the one hand. And then at the same time, as you mentioned, we're we're seeing these crazy high interest rates that, you know, I don't think are going to come down really significantly anytime soon. Um, although, you know, depending on who you ask, there's different forecasts. But, you know, generally speaking, I think we're all expecting these interest rates to stay relatively high. So that makes getting debt more difficult. Plus, we have a debt market that is also um, has reduced capacity compared to, you know, years, previous years. And on top of that, more and more projects coming online. So it's a perfect storm. You have more projects, more development happening, more need just at a baseline for more tax equity and debt. Then you have this increase in tax credits from the IRA. We have new uh, new regulatory scheme with Basel III that is squeezing the tax the traditional tax equity market. We have high interest rates, so it is a little bit of a perfect storm, and it is you know quite challenging now to figure out how we are going to, um, as you said, keep the market moving. Um, and as always, I, I think I hate the term solar coaster, but it is you know it's a term for a reason um, because we have seen these ups and downs before. And there's always a moment of, um, I'll just call it anxiety, because frankly, that's how I'm feeling. There's always this moment of anxiety where we kind of can't see how, uh, you know, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we always come out of it. Um, we're a very nimble industry, creative industry. Um, so on the tax credit side, um, you know, we are seeing more and more transferability options in the market. I think from our perspective, being a CNI developer and owner, um, I would like to see more options for smaller scale projects than we are currently seeing. Um, but I think it's just a matter of time before we can get there. 
Um, and on the debt side, I think we just need to start thinking outside the box and not looking at commercial banks as the only option for providing financing um, for our projects. That's going to mean, I think there's going to be more securitizations, more private placements, um, because we we have to move outside of our traditional project finance structure in order to get financing for these projects. Excellent. And then in terms of um, um, the sort of latest, well, this is actually put towards Paul. I apologize. Um, That's okay. I'll I'll talk about yeah. it. Deal yeah. volume a little bit, and we can uh, we can scooch over yeah. to Paul. But um, I think because of this. We are in a, um, you know, we're in a, a moment where a lot of deals have not gone through. Um, we're coming off of a very frothy market where where developers were making pretty big development dollars, um, and I think many developers are still expecting to make a lot of money on their projects because of the market the way that it was, and also because of the ITC adders. They're thinking, well, my project has X Y Z adder. So it should be worth that much more. The challenge is on the sponsor buyer side of these projects, all of the financing issues that we just talked about, we're struggling. We have those challenges to contend with. And then the other challenge, um, which you mentioned, John, is that we don't quite know how these ITC adders are going to apply and what is going to be required to qualify. So, you know, as you said, we're in the second of nine innings. We're getting right. more clarity, you know, week by week, month by month, but there are still a lot of unknowns. And I think, you know, as any good piece of legislation, uh, you know, it's clear as mud in a lot of places and we're not totally sure what, you know, what our legislators meant. And, you know, some things I think maybe were intended to go a different way and we just now have to contend with that and um, work through the details. One thing before I go to Paul and Melinda, do you feel like looking back at this last year, you know, if you looked at the first two quarters, you know, I remember going to Philadelphia and the Renewable Energy Plus conference there and a lot of our competitors and others were having the same message we had, which is we just weren't seeing deals getting done. Um, we were seeing bids all over the place. I think we've seen some uh, of that begin to coalesce in the second half of the year. And now I think what we are seeing in the capital markets that are affecting our Pricing developers are now understanding and, and having a better uh, scale of what to expect. How do you sort of see that continuing forward into into next year? Yeah, that's a, a great point, John. And and um, I do think that the market is starting to adjust and react appropriately to the you know the big picture. Um, so developers are starting to understand if they want to sell their projects, they're going to have to um, price them in the context of the challenges that we just talked about on tax credits, on debt, interest rates, all of the above. Um, and also understanding that those ITC adders are not um, set in stone. And so what we've seen a lot of um, in the market right now is and this gets tricky and challenging, but negotiating with sellers, um, you know, what happens if the ITC adder does or does not come to fruition? Um, you know, most people want to sell the deal and be done with it and be gone. But again, we have to be creative in how we structure the transactions to make sure that, you know, everybody is sharing the risk in the appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to turn to our chief development officer, Paul, and talk a little bit about store development. Paul, before we get into the numbers for a second, um, and I know we've got some side slides supporting that. Can you talk a little bit about how Clean Capital views 
uh, partnering with developers and, you know, how we sort of expect to be doing more of that in 2024? Sure, John. I, I think the first thing you, you showed us chart before about how many more megawatts are going to come in. Um, it, it's, it's a truth that there has to be about that many megawatts coming in. Power plants will retire because they're going to age out. Many of them are fossil fueled and so forth. And there has to be more capacity to make electricity that comes online. Uh, that can be from any source, but when you look at it kind of holistically, it's pretty clear that um, solar is going to be built in a big way. The challenge for clean capital and everybody else is to figure out, as Melinda said, how do we make that happen? Um, solar is a relatively quick uh, asset to deploy. Relatively quick means it takes three or four years to go from the beginning of a project. You know, we got a call this week about a new site uh, out west. And, and we said, yep, yeah, probably we can get that done by 2027 or 2028. So within that time frame, we're pretty sure that things are going to change. Um, it's hard to work through the ups and downs of the solar coaster, as Melinda said, you know, interest rates changing, power prices changing, all sorts of things. Um, and what Clean Capital has been able to do is kind of fashion a couple of different products that make developers um, a little bit less risky as they go through it. You know, I've been through it. I started up a development shop and worked through and and you risk a lot of your own money and a lot of, uh, you know, capital of your investors and friends and family. Um, what clean capital is going to be able to do is to, you know, reduce that risk first off, but also bring expertise. You know, within clean capital, we have economists, we have political folks like yourself and Scotty and others that can monitor this. So a developer can stick to what they're really good at, which is development, um, find the right sites you know, work through the, the permitting process, work through the electrical interconnection process. You know, we're good at that kind of thing. You know, generally speaking, uh, developers know where these things should be cited. In Clean Capital, we have our own opinions about that. And we do our own development, of course. But I think what we're looking to do is to make sure the expertise we have and the support functions that we have are made available to our development partners so that we can, you know, move these things forward. We're not giving folks a completely easy way of doing things. You know, within any development cycle of three years, the certainty is that the rules will change. It might be the right. state rules or the federal rules or the local rules, but things will clearly change as we go forward. You know, as you look at this, you know, the, the thing that's obvious is that solar has gone from, you know, 4%, which I think is actually generous, you know, up to 48% in 2023 uh, on this chart. You know, coal has taken the opposite in terms of, you know, new generation additions. Basically, there are no new coal plants that have been planned or built over the last five or six years or even 10 years, according to this chart. And I think that's, you know, things that we will be seeing. What's not shown on this chart is kind of the how many megawatts have to be added uh, and just normal retirements. If you take it, uh, you know, it, it's measured in the gigawatts, if not terawatts that have to be added over the time frame of a decade. If you look at this, you know, you've only got those four or five options on the bottom to choose from, and solar will become a major force as we move forward. The exact numbers, um, you know, CIA has got numbers that, um, you know, of, of how many gigawatts will come along. Uh, $550 billion of investment is required uh, over the next decade. And I think those types of numbers are real uh, as we move along. You know, in clean capital, we have our own views of this. Generally speaking, solar is popular if you do the projects well. 
um, you know, we think that, um, you know, Brownfields makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a site that can reuse infrastructure. So if we have a coal-fired power plant that's retiring, unrelated to us, we don't retire them. Um, and they've got transmission lines there, and they've got some space there, maybe from a coal ash pile or other locations. Um, we think repurposing those to be put into service uh, for coal, for solar generation makes an awful lot of sense. We work on landfills. Uh, landfills are often located near major cities or in major cities where load is needed. Um, and so we, you know, by collating, locating generation with load, it just makes a lot of sense. So if we find the right sites uh, and we can work through the issues that Melinda just went through, I think solar is going to be do very well over the coming decade. Um, and if it doesn't, and then frankly, you know, some other technology will have to come forward. We are looking a little bit more heavily at battery storage to help with that problem of making sure that there's enough capacity at the right time, you know, for the electric supply needs of the country. Paul, before we get into the community solar piece, I think, you know, people are familiar with clean capital over time. You know, originally I was at private yields go, right, by buying up operating assets. And then, you know, really over the course of the last two years, we've moved earlier and earlier buying assets and development, uh, beginning to support developers, uh, beginning to do some self-development in the brownfield space that, that your team continues to lead. Uh, and then I think working now in partnership with developers who are bringing, you know, pipeline. And as you mentioned, you know, we're using our back engine to help support them and, and get more projects in the ground. How have you seen the mindset of the developers themselves change sort of post IRA where, you know, it used to be a lot of uh, build and flip, right? And now folks actually see the potential of wanting to stay around, uh, around opportunities longer uh, and maybe get a financial piece in it. Well, I think developers always recognize the value of what they're developing, uh, if they're any good at it. I think that, you know, every project starts with a pro forma economic model and you sit there and figure out how do I make this pencil and how do I move it forward? I think within the case of uh, clean capital and the flexibility about forming partnerships where we can share some of the upside as we go forward or structure things so that the developers can stay associated with the deal, uh, that's an attractive proposition and it always will be. I think what we're trying to do is to make sure that ultimately, given the challenges that you know Melinda alluded to right now with high interest rates, um, given the challenges of regulations that are changing, um, that we you know create a platform through which developers can work through the various issues that come along, uh, can see forward around those a little bit more, um, and and really can succeed with their projects both financially and obviously uh, in terms of the megawatts that go to the grid. And then the other key thing that we're seeing from a trend perspective in, in 23, and I'm interested in your thoughts on how it's going to grow in 24, but community solar saw 14% growth just in the last quarter. Do you see community solar becoming more and more of, of our pipeline and sort of the broader national pipeline? You know, community solar is one of those things that people don't really recognize what it is in many states yet. Um, community solar is really just, I get to choose where my electricity comes from, you know, at least on paper. And I think that's a popular thing. It's um, why wouldn't you be able to say, I want my electricity to come from that solar plant down the street. Um, that makes sense. And I think as people realize that, you know, I can buy my electricity preferentially from a source that I know and I like and so forth, it just makes sense. I think as people recognize that some of the early states that have done it, you know, in Minnesota, Massachusetts, New York, and so forth, um, people, when they realize what it is, uh, really find it very, very popular. 
there's very few down, little downside associated with being able to pick where I get my electricity from. Uh, so I think that model has been successful where it's been deployed. Um, as a result, I think it's going to be copied um, in other states because it, it is something that consumer choice is a popular thing. It just makes a lot of sense. I believe that it'll grow exponentially as we go forward, which will lead a lot more to what Melinda alluded to, which is basically smaller projects, you know, maybe three to five megawatts located in communities that they can look at it, they can see it, and they can feel that um, they're part of the um, <clears throat> the new economy of solar generation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a community solar customer myself here in Buffalo. So before we get to Zoe, and Zoe too, um, I want to get to Kelly's question, Paul, because I think this is very fitting in terms of timing is, you know, I think in 23, we saw a lot of projects going underwater in terms of PPAs that were executed historically uh, in COVID and supply chain issues. Um, and as well as the, side of the debt markets have made some of those PPAs almost unable to be built. You know, I just actually came back from the CEO board meeting in Washington this week. And this is a pretty avid conversation among a lot of the folks at the table. We're seeing those same trends. But now you're beginning to see off takers uh, level setting and recognizing that. Um, you know, what do you see? Look at that. How do we how do we navigate that in 2024 going forward? Yeah, it's a problem. I, one of our people went to the Tennessee conference uh, down in Tennessee uh, a couple months ago, and uh, uh, TVA issued an, an RFP for new electricity. Uh, and one of their speakers said that they got uh, 15 projects that they had signed up. And uh, 13 of them came back within six months to say they couldn't honor the product price any longer because of higher interest rates, higher equipment costs, higher labor costs, and so forth. Uh, it's an unfortunate process of uh, changes in the market. Um, solar being more popular means that costs will go up. Uh, and, um, and there is a need to make sure that uh, projects will be financeable as you go along. Um, we're seeing the same thing on some of our projects, and we're working with uh, solar off takers to make sure that we can, um, you know, adjust the pricing to where uh, both the buyer and the seller can be um, satisfied that it works for them from a, an overall deal point of view. Excellent. Well, thank you, Paul. And I'm, next, I'm going to go to Zoe Berkeley, who is our chief operating officer and oversees uh, both the internal operations of Clean Capital, but also our asset management overall. Um, you know, the, the, I think it's important for us not to lose sight of sort of current projects that are that are operating as we bring more and more online. Um, you know, we, with significant increases in climate change and sort of weather-related events affecting those projects, things like severe smoke due to the wildfires not just in California these days, but also here in the Northeast. Uh, obviously, we've got almost new boiling oceans this summer in Florida. Uh, you know, we're going to see more and more of these wild impacts uh, on our infrastructure, which include uh, projects we, we own. Um, you know, what, what do we think about that needs to be considered, you know, going forward as we look to both uh, build out as well as manage our, our assets? Yeah, so I think kind of key jargon around sort of fighting climate change has always been sort of in two buckets, mitigation and adaptation. Obviously, the mitigating effort here is that we are building solar, we're building clean energy to replace dirty emitting fossil fuel energy. But the reality is that those same mitigating efforts need to also adapt to our sort of changing and um, increasingly frustrating reality that climate change is happening and that we are, those sites are just as a, um, vulnerable to extreme weather changes as houses and other, and other areas all around the world that are being um, affected on a daily basis. So some key 
ways that we look to to adapt to to that reality is we make sure that we are keeping a diversified solar portfolio. We have over 200 sites in 23 states and counting with multiple others under construction and um, gigawatts more under development. And we want to make sure that we are diversifying where those are located so that if there's an extreme weather event in one area of the world, the rest of the portfolio is, is ideally still operating as we expect and that we're able to literally and figuratively weather those storms and still meet our returns um, and meet our revenue expectations and continue producing clean energy. You know, just within the last two years, we've seen an, an uptick in um, effects on some of our sites from wildfires and heat waves, um, wildfires out west. You know, we're, we're kind of a, a, a we've started to get used to them, um, unfortunately, but then we also saw them impact our sites out east with some of the wildfires in Canada and the residual smoke that came down into the New England um, and New York area specifically. And then we also have sites in in Guam that have have experienced some issues with um, with tropical storms and typhoons. But again, because of the diversified nature of our portfolio, we've been able to sort of navigate each of those in stride. And sort of underlying all of that is also how we are managing our assets on a daily basis. It takes pretty hands-on focus on managing the daily operations, equipment availability, and production on site to ensure that we're readying a site for anything that might be coming our way and that we're well-prepared should something hit our sites. So we've um, we've had an increased focus on our spare parts inventory that really ha- helps in the cases of um, if you know something happens to the site, we have spares on hand and we can reduce that amount of downtime um, because we're able to make that repair quicker. Um, a silver lining of COVID and all the supply strain constraints that we um, experience across the industry really helped sort of light that fire under us to um, sort of improve that part of our operations and then making sure we're stowing any trackers as needed um, and de-energizing a site should that be necessary temporarily. Vegetation management, always kind of an afterthought in many models and um, and out West in particular, it used to not be yeah. a big focus, but I think with wildfires, um, people are increasingly focus on on that piece as well and then ensuring you just have good partners um, with O&M and technicians on the ground you know it, it takes a village to operate these sites um, it is not just a energization on PTO or COD date and let it let it go it, it's sort of a daily focus on um, and hands-on managing to make sure we're producing as much clean energy as possible yeah I mean a lot of developers you know look at these things and then intend to, to hand them off right? When they get acquired, we actually are long-term owners. So if there's any message you could bring forward to those developers as they're, and how we would start to view that long-term, uh, uh, long-term emphasis, I guess, in terms of other structural or, 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 um, you know, other, other, uh, things they should be thinking about that we're going to be requiring from them. Yeah, so it's kind of a number of things. I think designing the site for kind of the worst case scenario of climate, of course, that can sometimes yeah. be a bit more expensive, but I think in the long run, you will see insurance premiums be reduced as a result. There are amazing insurance brokers out there. We lean on our CAC quite a bit to just get their thoughts on what rates are looking like in a certain region. Are there design adjustments that we can make in order to um, improve and improve the resilience of the site? And again, hopefully reduce costs over the long term. And also, I think to some of Paul's points, making sure that the community is is involved and engaged. Um, you know, we want to build trust with the landowners and know that you know we will have their back should it, should at the point of decommissioning, and that we'll be 
doing so responsibly and kind of having a more sustainability, holistic sustainability focus on um, the construction. And then very far down the road, ideally, ultimate decommissioning of the site where, you know, we would be recycling or um, donating panels accordingly. Excellent. I'm going to get to some of the questions um, and I'm going to direct them at a couple of the different speakers just so you guys are ready. But I'm going to start off, I'm going to address two of them up front and then um, I think Melinda come to you on, on a question around structuring. But getting to the question around COP28, for folks that weren't tracking, we had the uh, COP28 just wrapped up this week, some big announcements around efforts to uh, reduce fossil fuels or eliminate fossil fuels, which is really interesting. You know, it definitely not enough info yet to really understand the impact that uh, those announcements are going to have. Other than there seems to be a lot of excitement and, you know, the fact that we actually got to some uh, negotiation at the end was a, you know, good leadership uh, by the folks on the ground there in the UAE, uh, UAE to get it done. Um Without getting the nuts and bolts of the actual COP agreement, I think one of the things I found most exciting over the last 10 days following the momentum on the ground were the non-governmental commitments, where you had major companies there talking about some of the goals that they're setting, uh, whether it be Microsoft or Google or or um, or others, you know, the, the work that they're anticipating to do more of, uh, both on, uh, you know, addressing carbon overall but also really increasing their renewable footprint and trying to get more aggressive. So, you know, one of the questions is that what do we sort of see growing in terms of sector wise? And, and I think as we talked earlier, community solar in the DG space, we call it the middle market, not, not only CNI. Uh, we expect to accelerate a lot uh, and continue to accelerate, but we're also seeing, you know, more and more active um, corporates in this space wanting to do uh, PPAs, et cetera. I don't think that's going to change drastically um but you know the ability to provide them the power they need as the demand for renewable continues to grow is something that we're going to be looking to find partners to continue to address um one question for you melinda is around um other than sort of acquiring 100 percent of development projects what type of investment structures do you find most appealing to developers and is how's that changing with sort of the interest rate environment yeah, those are great questions. Um, so first to speak about the structures, um, you know, there are some developers out there that that just want to sell the project and move on to their to their next thing. But I think given the high interest rate environment and some of the other market challenges that we've been discussing here, a lot of developers are thinking, well, actually, I kind of want to stay in. Um, I don't want to just sell these projects and 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 move off, you know, move on to the next thing because I think that. Um, I will be able to um, get a better return by staying in long term. So we have seen and, we, and we've partnered with some developers where there is a joint ownership of projects so that the developer is not just getting a development fee up front, but they're also earning, um, you know, an additional earnout on the back end. Um, so we've structured that in a few different ways, but it means they stay in the deal long term. Um, and, you know, hopefully the performance of the asset and, you know, market shifts, hopefully in the future, um, mean that they'll be able to make up some of the development fee that they um, had hoped to get and are now not able to get because of the market changes, the increased costs in, um, in uh, equipment, the interest rates, all the things that we just talked about. Um, and similarly, what I alluded to earlier um, on things like ITC adders. 
um, where there's uncertainty at NTP or pre-NTP as to whether a project is going to qualify, either because there's some uncertainty about the project or because more likely there's uncertainty about what the requirements are to qualify um, by structuring sort of a long-term partnership with the developer, um, you know, they can share in some of that upside as well in the future. Um, so that's one, keeping the developer in the deal for the long-term as a partner of Clean Capitals um, so that we can, um, so that the, the developer can realize an additional return um, uh, in the long run. Um, another thing that we've done is, you know, rather than simply buying projects, you know, at a specific milestone NTP or, you know, some other milestone, um, you know, we're working with with developers that have, you know, a proven history of being able to develop projects successfully, um, have good strategies um, and investment ideas about where they want to be developing projects. Um, and in, in some cases, we're willing to kind of fund upfront some of their development pipeline um, and uh, in exchange for, you know, some exclusivity on the pipeline. And that is also a, a better structure because you're not putting all your cash in through the development period and then hoping that you can sell it. Your economics are a little bit more locked in, although, of course, you know, we all have to share equally in adjustments for market uh, market shifts. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, I, I like, to, but then we talk about this like on the VD perspective. I like to talk about the fact we're trying to bring long-term capital to the front of the line and, and bringing that into the hands of the developers earlier, uh, which can really provide better returns across the board. Uh, so, you know, there are some questions around um, hydrogen here, and I just want to say we are not seeing a lot of solar plus hydrogen projects to date. Uh, but you know, when you think about clean capital versus some of the others in the market, we are truly infrastructure investors, right? We are investing to scale. So, you know, we may not be taking some of those earlier bets on new technologies yet. Uh, we're taking, you know, trying to bring capital into the infrastructure side of things. So, you know, we may not be seeing those H uh, the hydrogen projects, for instance, yet, just because that's not our sweet spot. Um, I want to go to a question from Dave Flynn, Paul, around storage and solar, you know, and we're really beginning to see more and more developers wanting to get into storage. You know, is there any uh, sweet spot or sort of advice that you see as we're seeing more and more projects come through? Yeah, I, first off, thank you, Dave, for the, for the question. The uh, So where we were 10 years ago on solar, we are now on storage. Everything I said before about there will be more solar coming online is true. But in the areas where solar has already uh, taken a strong foothold, so Texas and California and elsewhere, um, we've seen that there's a need for storage in addition to solar. Um, so when we get together in a year from now, John, to kind of replicate this session, I suspect we're going to realize that solar and storage and more storage has become the big uh, new kid on the block that has taken a real change in the market. Right now, storage is a uh, product that is relatively new. Um, there are people that make uh, storage systems and so forth, but there's not 10 years of, of uh, market data or performance data that Zoe and her team can really look at and learn best practices from. Uh, in addition, um, you know, as we go forward, 
storage is a more risky type of technology from a market point of view. Uh, inherently, you're moving power from one time of day to another. Uh, and the markets as to you know what power is worth in the middle of the day versus at night are going to be very volatile. They always are. And how you can economically you know manage that going forward is going to be an important thing. Returns right now on storage projects are higher than they are on solar, uh, accommodating for that risk. Uh, and I think you're going to see that um, staying that way for a little bit of time until really we have a, a more robust storage market that goes forward. We've seen the infancy of that. I think we're going to see that growth uh, being even stronger than solar as we go forward through the next year. Excellent. So um, I'm, I'm going to get the last question from Larry Wilkerson in, in part of this next part of the conversation. And thank you, Larry, for asking around, I think, some of the challenges at COP and I think some of the challenges around the, the consistent sort of international uh, dialogue around climate is it, it, definitely challenging. I think there's a lot of good, solid, positive trends, though, that we cannot avoid that I think with even without uh, the international community sort of coalescing around the goals that we really need them to be doing. Um, what's, what's exciting, I think for the first time, we're seeing uh, at least domestically policy, uh, technology and finance aligned in a way that they'd never been before to really address the climate crisis. Um, but there's a long way to go. So looking at the president's goals that he has set, um, you know, to really reduce by 50 to uh, 50 percent plus by uh, 2005 levels by 2030 we should have reduced about a six percent emissions reduction in 2022 we only dipped 1.5 percent right so just a level set uh we are we are already behind the curve and we need to be going harder and harder to solve these challenges meaning the transition needs to happen faster so that means more projects in the ground uh, that means more alignment of the supply chain uh, and I think efficiencies across the market as we're bringing uh, more and more dollars, whether it be the sponsor equity, uh, whether it be you know alignment around how these tax credits are actually going to work. It's more, we're going to need more and more debt products available for things like merchant storage and other areas that you know are really relatively new to the space. Um, but to continue the reduction goals we need, we need to be pushing this transition faster. And to achieve that, more and more capital needs to continue to flow into the solutions. Uh, if we're going to hit the 2030 mark, it's going to require over $10 trillion in new capital uh, to go into projects. Things like solar, wind, uh, you were already seeing offshore wind slow, which is really challenging and many, many, many projects begin to fail. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take companies like Clean Capital and others, right, to be able to access and bring that capital forward, but it's going to take partners in the ground who are developing, finding quality projects, uh, as well as it's going to take all of us in the industry to talk about the successes of what we're doing and to tell our story to both continue to build the political support, the policy support, and the community support to do the things we need to be doing. And that's going to take all of us uh, and being active and willing to participate in the conversations of the importance of what we're doing and why we're doing it and the impact it's having locally. So, you know, I think my challenge to everyone on uh, in the audience today is to think about the role you can play in 2024 to help push forward the policies we care about and to communicate and share the stories of what you're seeing, both the obstacles of what you're seeing, whether it be challenges at a local permitting 
uh, event in, in, in a community you're in or uh, the positives of getting projects in the ground and being able to communicate that out to the community. Sometimes it takes a little extra effort, but that extra effort can go a long way in building support for future projects. So I know we have a limited time left. You know, I really sort of want to go around the horn just at the end here and say and ask the, the panelists, if we were sitting here in 2030, yeah. right, having this same conversation, but actually looking backwards over the decade, how are the trends of what we talked about for 2024 going to be affecting where we are in 2030? Yeah, um, I think it's, so I'm, I'm an optimist and I really think that the industry as a whole has done a very good job um, of getting creative and reacting um, positively to the challenges that we're facing as a, as a market. Um, so I, while I can't predict what, you know, what's going to happen in the next six, six years, I think in 2030, we're going to be looking back at this time and say, wow, remember those days of 2023? Remember that, you know, that was a rough, that was a rough patch. Um, but I think we're going to have come out of it with some really interesting and innovative financing structures and partnerships, um, because we are all committed to, you know, the big goal and we are committed to moving, you know, to advancing the industry, uh, fighting climate change and doing everything that we can. So I, I don't know what it's going to be, but I have really, um, high hopes and I'm optimistic that we will um, look back in six years from now and say, wow, look what we accomplished after that really scary time. Absolutely. Paul. John, first off, I look forward to the session in 2029. I'm a big fan of experts only. Um, <laughs> we will be um, building a, a tremendous amount of solar in the next six years. Um, it is necessary for the economy. It's necessary for supplying the electricity that's the lifeblood of the U.S. Uh, system and the worldwide system. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more batteries. Uh, clean Capital has already mobilized a lot of um, infrastructure internally to make sure that we're ready for that type of new market that we're going to need. Um, I think that, uh, generally speaking, the public is going to be more accepting of their electricity coming from renewable energy, and that's what they expect is going to happen. I think you're generally seeing that um, things like electric cars, which were unheard of five years ago, are now pretty much, yeah, see them all the time on the road, they work fine. Um, you know, solar on people's roofs, not an unusual event that a decade ago that was. I think you're going to see renewable energy becoming incredibly mainstream in the next six years, and pretty much folks will be, you know, used to that as the way that things should be done. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic as well as Melinda. I think Clean Capital has a good machine for assisting uh, with those projects to come to fruition. Uh, and I'm very optimistic that we're going to be uh, very successful in the next six years. Excellent. Zoe. So definitely echo Melinda and Paul. But I think on a slightly more granular sort of lens, I, my hope is that by 2030, we have a much more closed loop supply chain on solar. I think that that will solve some of the problems that we are facing in real time. And really by by the 2030s, Harvard Business Review and, Are and IRENA have estimated that hundreds of millions of tons of annually waste will come from the solar industry due to some of the earlier um, early stage projects then at that point becoming decommissioned. 95% of those panels of, of a panel is recyclable. So I think just even within the last five years, even in the last two years, we've seen such an onslaught of really smart, really innovative companies coming into that space. And I think that in 2030, our supply chain will look a lot different. And that is a hope yeah. of mine 
And I will also add kind of on the policy questions, I think we saw even during the most volatile times um, in federal policy to renewables in recent memory, the private sector did not slow down. And we saw such rapid growth in our in our sector that, um, you know, we can't sort of let some of the, the slowness of COP28 really deter us. And um, I think we're we're still full steam ahead. Yeah. I, well, first of all, thanks to everyone for the optimism. And, and Zoe, I agree with you on the circular economy efforts that have to happen, not just in our industry, but all by 2030. I think what many of us underestimate is we are witnessing the uh, a generational transition, right? And we are investing in that transition and, and from an infrastructure uh, perspective. And the the engine's just really getting revved. So, you know, mid the mid mid decade efforts of getting projects in the ground, getting uh, clean electrons flowing, getting folks trained up to grow our workforce, which quarter by quarter, we're getting new, exciting people joining our our mission to bring more solar uh, storage and other clean energy and renewable efforts uh, uh, forward. You know, all of those key pieces are, are aligning. Um, but you know, for me, the next year is a lot of blocking and tackling has to happen to just continue to accelerate that scale. Um, we're, we at Clean Capital will play a key role in, in looking for partners to continue to help with that as well. I'm going to thank our panelists for joining today. Um, as always, you can get more episodes of Experts Only at cleancapital.com. Please reach out to us to, to find ways to partner in helping to solve the climate crisis. We want to be working with uh, innovative, exciting teams and finding ways to uh, get dollars out the door into quality projects. I want to thank folks for joining from the audience and specifically thank Cara, Colleen, uh, and, and, and Carly for helping to put this together. Uh, we'll be back in 2024 with other conversations about trends in the market, about things we're seeing uh, in, in terms of our projects and way to work, work more closely with this at Clean Capital. Well, thank you, everybody. Have a great holiday season. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.